Hey everyone, Sarah Peck here, and this is the Startup Pregnant Podcast. What does it mean to drop the ball? How do you, if you're a perfectionist or an ambitious person and you're driven by career or fame or success, how do you find a way to do it all? Well, maybe it's not possible to do it all. Let's talk about it. Today's guest is Tiffany Dufou. She is an amazing human being. I just finished reading her book and we're going to have her on the podcast in just a moment. Her life's work is to advance women and girls. She's the author of the book called Drop the Ball, and it's a memoir and manifesto that shows women how to cultivate the single skill they really need in order to thrive. And that is the ability to let go. Gloria Steinem, who writes the introduction to the book, calls Drop the Ball important, pathbreaking, intimate, and brave. She's been named to Fast Company's League of Extraordinary Women. She was a launch team member for Sheryl Sandberg's Lean In, and she is the chief leadership officer to Levo, one of the fastest growing millennial professional networks. On today's interview, we talk about what it feels like to be a struggling working woman when you're barely able to get afloat. And we also talk about how doing it all is really an impossible question. So when you're stuck, when you're struggling, and when you feel completely overwhelmed, what do you do? Well, we talk about that too. We talk about what and how to change if you're overworked and exhausted. And we talk about why having a compass or a larger mission statement can really help you find out what it is that you need to say no to. And then lastly, she tells us about how she's enlisted in the power of community to build her support network. I'm amazed by how many people she is able to stay in touch with, and she shares her system for exactly how she does it. So without further ado, let's welcome Tiffany to the show. Welcome to the Startup Pregnant Podcast, where we talk to creative leaders about what it means to be an entrepreneur and a parent. I'm your host, Sarah K. Peck. So many charities to give money to. Today's episode is brought to you by Hippo Give, which is a new and simpler way to support the organizations and causes that you care about. I just made a donation to Planned Parenthood. It took about five seconds. Go to startuppregnant.com slash charity. And you can learn more about how Hippo Give is currently matching all of your first-time donations up to the first $50. So if you want to donate money, go to startuppregnant.com slash charity. It's super easy. There are instructions for how to do it. And there's a free $50 to donate to any charity of your choice. As always, hit subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have a minute to leave us a review, we would love that. If you need any of the show notes from the show, head to startuppregnant.com. All right, everybody, I am so excited to have Tiffany Dufu here. How do you say your last name, by the way? Just like that. If okay. you mess it up, you'll make it sound beautiful in French. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> I'm so glad to have you here. I read your book in a marathon sitting and I was just rereading it. It's an amazing book. It's called Drop the Ball. We will get into it. But first, I want to ask you a question I ask every guest, which is, what was your morning like today? What time did you wake up? Are you still running in the mornings? And take us through what today's morning looked like for you. 
Yeah, so today I opened my eyes and Cynthia, which is what I've named the voice in my head, we all have them, (laughs) said to me before I could even get out of the bed, you're not going to go to the gym again. You know, you wrote about going to the gym and drop the ball. (laughs) Um, And I basically had to remind her that I was managing a big birthday weekend for my husband yesterday. And all she does is sit up in my head eating nachos all day. She's never run a mile in her life. And that she should leave me alone. I'm dropping the ball on that this morning. So that was my morning. I I got up and took my daughter to school and got myself to the office, but did not do my run today because I was up so late from helping my husband celebrate his birthday. So what time did you wake up? I woke up at six. That's still so early. Women are amazing. Parents are amazing. (laughs) I love looking at that. And so then what do you do? What did you do today? Did you get a coffee? How did you get to us speaking together right now? I dropped my daughter off at school and then I stopped and grabbed some oatmeal before I came into the office. I was pretty frantically sending an email to our nanny. I usually send it on Sunday night, but I crashed last night because I was doing all of that celebrating. So a number of things that normally happens on Sunday evening did not happen. So I was kind of scrambling to do my calendar, which I normally do on Sunday night for the week, to send an email to our nanny, kind of detailing the details for the week that I normally do on Sunday. So this morning was a bit of a scramble, but now I'm back on track and very happy to be talking to you. I love hearing about people's mornings because it's such an like insight into what the world is actually like for each of us. And it also shows what we do and what we don't do. Because that mythological woman out there who's doing everything, as we'll probably talk about because this is part of the subject of your book, isn't always true. We just can't all do it. So this book that you have, Drop the Ball, what does it mean to drop the ball to you? What's the core message of this book? Well, for me, dropping the ball means letting go of unrealistic expectations of doing it all. It's exactly what you just said. And figuring out what really matters most to me so that I can leverage my highest and best use in achieving that and engage other people in my life along the way. Hmm. In one of the parts of the book you write, this part, it made me start to cry a little bit. You said, I have encountered many women who are struggling to swim. They are drowning in emails, carpools, playdates, PowerPoint pitches, and grocery runs. They're drowning in unrealistic expectations that they're supposed to do it all and have it all. What was the moment for you when you discovered in your own life that there was this unrealistic pile of expectations that you just couldn't live up to? Hmm. Well, the first time it really hit me, sorry, that was a touching moment for me too, (laughs) when you just read it again. For me, it was my first day back from maternity leave. You know, I was pretty much blindsided or so I felt blindsided by the reality of being a working mom. And by the way, I speak to so many women for whom their moment was finally getting the job that they wanted and realizing it's much tougher to be the boss or, you know, a family member, a parent becomes ill or incapacitated and it turns their world upside down. But for me, it was the birth of my first child. Up until that point, I had pretty much been a fairly flawless Stepford wife on autopilot and, (laughs) you know, high functioning executive and leader and felt like, 
having a baby was just going to be, you know, another thing that I added to the plate and that I was going to be able to do it all pretty seamlessly. But my first day back from maternity leave after having my son turned into a literal disaster because I was running from meeting to meeting and forgot to do something really essential that I'd been doing for the previous three months, which was to pump milk. And I come prepared. I mean, I had my pump and I had also arranged or so I thought for a room to pump the milk, but it just escaped me in trying to be the perfect worker. And it wasn't until very late in the afternoon when milk started seeping through my blouse and my jacket that I realized, oh my gosh, I've done something. (laughs) I've missed something really important. And long story short, I ended up in a bathroom stall, a public bathroom stall, crying, expressing my baby's milk into the toilet because I couldn't even get the breast pump to latch on (laughs) to what were like basically two very hard bowling balls on my chest and kind of realize, oh, this isn't going to be as easy as I thought. And it wasn't until later on when I got home and was still kind of sniffling in bed and had this moment, this surreal moment of hearing my husband come home the way that he normally did every night. But this night was very different because I was paying attention to the things that I hadn't done before that prevented him from having the same exact experience. So for example, I could hear him putting his coat in the closet because I could hear the rustle of the dry cleaning bag that I picked up for him on the way home that day. And I could hear him putting his shoes in the hallway instead of inside of the closet. I could hear him going to the refrigerator and getting the plate of food with like the saran wrap over it that he knew to expect to be in the refrigerator. And I could hear him heating it up. I could hear him taking the plate and the cutlery after he was finished eating and putting it in the sink instead of the dishwasher. I could hear his body hitting our blue couch. And, you know, those kind of sprinkle of ESPN highlights that come on when they turn on that remote. And I just started to feel this sense of resentment and anger that I'd never experienced before and figured out very quickly that I was going to have to do something about it. Oh, so I have so many questions. One is, what did you do? And the other is, how did we get here? Like, how did we get to a place where women are expected to do it all? Well, how we got here is through a lot of social conditioning. It's our culture. You know, every single one of us is born into this world playing out certain roles. If you're a man, your first role is probably son. If you're a girl, it's probably daughter. At some point, we may become sisters or brothers if we have siblings, or maybe we were born as a sibling. We become friends, students, workers. Some of us become husbands, wives, mothers, fathers. And if we're ambitious people, we by default put the word good in front of all of our roles. So it's not sufficient to be a son. You want to be a good son. You want to be a good daughter and a good sister and a good friend and a good student. And in my conversations with so many women, what I've discovered is that we all have these invisible job descriptions that are almost identical for all of our roles, even though we're born in different parts of the world with different values, with different families. And it starts out really early. So for example, one of the 
line items in a good mom job description is that you are to be physically present when your child takes their first steps. I cannot tell you the number of women who have come to me really stressed because they have a work event that they need to prepare for. It's in another state. They just know as soon as the plane takes off their child, who is about a year old, is going to start walking, they will have missed this momentous occasion and it will have made them a very bad mom. This is despite the fact that None of us could say that we remember who was there when we took our first steps. But apparently, if you miss this moment, it means that you're a very bad mom. One of the lines in a good father, good husband job description is that you are to aspire to be a breadwinner at all costs, even the cost of meaningfully engaging with your family. And I hope somebody writes a book for men about how to drop that ball. But either way, you know, from the moment that we're put in a pink or blue blanket, From the moment that we start playing with toys, from the moment that we start watching television, the people that are in our lives that we're observing, for me, it was my mom. I was raised in the church. My mom was a preacher's wife. We had a perfectly clean home. Our hair was always cornrowed and beaded in the beautiful same direction. I watched television. I was going to be Claire Huxtable from The Cosby Show. That was a show that I grew up on, which basically meant that I would have a clean home. My hair would always be perfectly done. I would have flawless makeup. I would have five fairly well-behaved children who were all college-bound. And in the second season of my life, I would make partner at a law firm. So where do we get these crazy expectations? We get them from the world around us. Choosy moms choose Jif. We get it from advertising. We're all swimming in the culture. And it isn't until later on, particularly for women, that at some point it hits us. And unfortunately for a lot of women, it hasn't hit them yet, that the expectations are really impossible to fulfill. But that's where it comes from. And one of the interesting things, because I do a lot of work with diversity and inclusion, and one of the interesting things about gender is that it's the one aspect of diversity that having close proximity with someone who's different from you doesn't necessarily create an awareness or awakening about their experience relative to gender. So for example, with race, There's lots of research that shows when you spend time with people who are different from you, that you become more sensitive to their plight, to their sense of social justice. The same thing with people in the LGBT community. The more that you spend time with someone who might be gay or might be transgender, the more apt you are to feel empathy for them and their experience and how they're living it in the world and how more apt you are to want to promote their success and their civil rights. That's not necessarily the case with gender. We grow up with people of the opposite sex. So just because a man grows up in a home with a woman doesn't mean that he's going to be a feminist. (laughs) It starts more very early. Gender notions start very early. And because we all contribute to it, I did as well. Even as a feminist, one of my dirty feminist secrets was that publicly I advocated for the disruption of gender stereotypes and roles in the public sphere in the workplace. But at home, I didn't do a very good job of disrupting them. I think that's so interesting. And it was one of the parts of the book that was so captivating. The book is like part memoir and you take us through your whole story, but also practical, tactical tools and advice and strategies that you used. 
And the story that you share about how your relationship with your partner changed over time and how you woke up to these gender stereotypes and the way that you'd internalize them and how it was so different in the work sphere versus the home sphere. How did you even start to have those conversations with your partner about changing the nature of your relationship? Mm -hmm. So as you know, from reading the book, that the first set of conversations I really had to have were conversations with myself. And that's why the book is called Drop the Ball, not How to Get Other People to Pick Up the Ball. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I had a lot of work to do. But once I did my pre-work, it became not so difficult to have the conversation with him. Because of course, my challenge was that I wasn't having the conversation with him at all. In fact, I was doing the opposite of that through something that I called imaginary delegation. It's basically when you assign someone a task and you fully expect them to complete the task. And when they don't, you become irritated, annoyed, angry, but you never actually tell them that you assigned the task to them. And when common sense prevails and you think to yourself, well, I never actually told them to take out the recycling, you snap back at common sense. Well, no one has to tell me to take the recycling out around here. I mean, can't people see that the recycling needs to get taken out? And then you kind of continue with this cycle. So I had a lot of work to do to get past imaginary delegation and eventually to come to a place where I could, what I call delegate with joy. And I took a page from Dr. Phil, who I read his column in O Magazine pretty religiously. And one of the things that Dr. Phil often does when he's giving advice is he gives you a script for a conversation. And it did hit me at some point in my journey that I was very good at communicating my needs and my wants and making things a win-win situation at work. You know, if I wanted a raise or if I wanted a promotion or if I wanted a bigger budget or if I wanted more people on my team, I knew how to schedule time with someone in advance during a time that was convenient for them. I knew how to frame the ask in such a way that it would be a win-win situation by playing to what they cared about and what motivated them. But at home, I didn't do that at all. I didn't do it at all, really, in my personal life. I just kind of made all of these assumptions. So my first real delegating with joy conversation with my husband basically started with me scheduling time with him, just like I would have with someone at work, and explaining to him that, hey, babe, you know, I've been really stressed lately, and I feel like you felt the brunt of that, and he'll like kind of shake his head. (laughs) And to basically say, look, I've been doing some work. I think I figured out what matters most to me and it involves my relationship with you, raising conscious global citizens, really advancing women and girls. It's just that I feel like I'm doing a lot of things right now that aren't laddering up to me being able to achieve what I want. And you've always been my biggest cheerleader. You've always been here for me. We started this journey knowing that we were going to support each other. And there's a couple of things that you could do that would make a world of difference to me as I try to figure out how to make a bigger impact. And when I tell you what they are, you're going to wonder why I scheduled this meeting instead of just sending you a text message. But that's how important these two little things are to me, babe. One is that you take out the recycling and the other is that you pick up the dry cleaning. Like, Hmm. what do you think? What What do you say? Well, he said, sure, babe. They're always going to say, sure, babe. (laughs) I mean, unless he's 
a total jerk, which you would need another book for that. (laughs) (laughs) Most of the time they're going to say, sure, babe, whether or not they actually do what you've asked or whether or not they do them the way you would like them to be done. That's a whole nother chapter, but that is the answer to the question. How do you even begin to have the conversation for me, which was about renegotiating the terms of my marriage and my relationship? You know, I had to do that because I didn't start off in a very equitable way, but I love people reading the book that aren't even partnered yet or haven't walked down the aisle yet because hopefully they can prevent a lot of what I had to do in order to get things on the right track. I think one of the really interesting things about that story, too, or that I particularly liked is you wrote out this whole master Excel list of all of the tasks. Later on, once you started to have the conversations about what it took to run a household. And I love that you confessed that it was like in your mind, it was 95% you doing it and 5% him. And then when he started to list out like what he did as well, you're like, oh, actually, the disparity here might actually be, I think you gave him like 25%. (laughs) Like you're like, oh, you actually do a lot more, not half, but you do more than I expected. The waking up to the like chatter that happens in our minds, the story we tell about what's happening. Yes. What is this person doing? And they must be doing it for a reason. Or this is how the dry cleaning has to be done. I am so appreciative of how much of this journey was your inner journey as well. Oh, absolutely. And that was an important moment and scene for the reader too, because I love books. I read a lot of books. And we tend to, as the reader, trust the narrator. And up until that point in the book, you really were kind of bought into this idea that this woman's husband is kind of lazy or that he doesn't really chip in the way that he should because of the stories that she's telling you, because of the stories that she's told herself. But at that point in the book, you begin to realize as the reader, wait a minute, it seems like he actually is doing a lot more once we hear his perspective, which is really the only time in the book where you really get to hear his perspective of what's happening. Mm -hmm. And I think it's an important note that the stories that we tell ourselves inform our realities. And that one of the most important things that we can do to shift our realities is to disrupt the stories that we're telling. And some of the stories that I was telling myself included things like, your husband's pretty much useless. He can't manage a detail to save his life. He's never here. He's always working. These are very common stories that I talk about in the book and that I break down. And I think it's important for us to begin to disrupt if we want to create new kind of scenarios at home. And so important, too, because I think this ties back to where we started our conversation. Let me see if I can tie this together. One of my takeaways from the book after reading it for the first time was a little bit of skepticism about like, wait a second, is the message here that I have to do more work to make this work? The idea that, wait, I have to take responsibility to start these conversations and promote a 50-50 partnership. But then I realized, and I think you articulate quite well, that it's tied back to this idea of 
women taking on 27 different roles and then putting good or great in front of each of those roles. And this mental concept of, I'm not just going to be a wife. I'm going to be a good wife. I'm not just going to be a good wife. I'm going to be a great wife. My home is going to be spotless. Like, I'm not just going to make cupcakes. I'm going to make red velvet cupcakes with homemade cream cheese frosting on them. (laughs) You know, and it just, it's almost this collective cultural neuroticism. And part of the message I'm hearing is, okay, we all need to wind back a little bit because we can't actually. Am I tying that together? Like, tell me what you think about this. Well, I would say that's even more nuanced. What I would say is, I think it's awesome to aspire to be an extraordinary wife, for example, or an extraordinary mother. I think what we've got to do is recurate a different job description for what it means to be an extraordinary mother or an extraordinary wife or an extraordinary worker. There's nothing wrong with aspiring to excellence. It's just that our current definition for what excellence is, is faulty. And it's based on nonsense, (laughs) on very, you know, old school expectations that no person in today's world could possibly meet. And so, you know, what I'm suggesting is that we recurate what it means for us to be good or what it means for us to be great, whatever that is for you. Once you're clear about what matters most to you, The second piece, and one of the things that matters most to me, for example, is raising conscious global citizens. That's what I hope to achieve in relationship to my kids at the end of the day. One of the things that I do really well with very little effort is helping other people to achieve clarity through guidance and encouragement. Some people would call that coaching and would say you should have like a coaching business. All of us have things that we do very well with very little effort, usually because we've done it over and over and over again. We're not necessarily prodigies. And when you combine that with the things that only you can do, in other words, you could never delegate it to someone else. It would be too callous or irresponsible. It really helps you to figure out what you should be working on in relationship to what matters most to you. So, for example, because one of the things that you can't really outsource to someone else is the installation of values in kids. My highest and best use in raising conscious global citizens is engaging my kids in meaningful conversations each and every day. No matter where I am in the world, I connect with them via Skype or FaceTime or over the telephone. And I ask them questions like, what kind of day did you create for yourself today? Who did you laugh with today? If an alien spaceship came down from outer space and abducted someone at your school today, who would they have abducted? Why would they have abducted that person? And in that way, I can help my kids develop hopefully a good relationship with themselves, with their peers, with their teachers, with their environment, hopefully with the world. Now, does that mean that on any given day, I wasn't supposed to have packed a certain lunch or made, you know, a Halloween costume or done all of these other things? Oh, sure. But I, Tiffany Dufu, can drop the ball on all of that and feel 100% confident that I am an extraordinary mother if I've had my meaningful conversation with my kids each day, because that is now at the top of my job description for what it means to be an extraordinary mother. So that's the nuanced redefinition and 
Does that require some work up front? Well, absolutely. We do need to take ourselves through a series of exercises to figure out what does matter most to us and what our highest and best use is in achieving that. But once you've done that pre-work, it took me so long to get it down, but I, I wrote the book. It took me nearly three years, but I wrote the book in hopes that it doesn't have to take another woman so long. And once you have that, you have your inputs for your drop the ball question, which I ask myself still a number of times a day, especially because I also have a lot of unread email messages and text messages from my little sisters and billboards telling me I should be skinnier and have longer hair. That you know, is X, Y, or Z responding to this email my highest and best use in achieving whatever matters most to me? And if the answer is no, I can move on. So that's the reappropriation of work. There is some at the offset, but really it's about redefining what success even is, what our roles even are, so that we can be gentler on ourselves and so that we can get rid of the G word, Hmm. which whenever I'm talking to a group of men, I have to explain it's guilt. (laughs) (laughs) I knew what it was. (laughs) I know you knew what it was, which is just, it's this really insidious feeling that we've committed this moral transgression. And it's so sad to me. And it's so infuriating that I speak with so many women, all of whom have amazing intentions, Sarah. I've never met with a woman who every day wasn't just trying to do right by herself, her community, her family, her workplace in order to create positive change and to do something meaningful. And yet in the process of doing that, she feels like she's done something terribly wrong. We need to just obliterate the G word. A thousand percent. I couldn't agree more. One of the things that's fascinating about the way that you work is you just touched on it. And I think that create a job description for who you want to be as a wife is just such a phenomenal exercise. And this is part of a number of different strategies I've seen you use. You set up focused missions or compasses for yourself in your partnership and your work. And it's like, at this very high level, what is the most important thing that I'm doing and what matters the most to me? And using that as the sounding board or the rubric against which you make decisions, which like blowing my mind, so useful and so helpful. My questions now are for people listening in twofold. Number one, what happens when someone's in the moment of a breakdown? Someone's so frazzled, so disoriented, they don't have this yet. They don't know what their wayfinding device is, and they feel like they can't possibly add more to their plate. Yes. So I wrote this book in a lot of ways for those women because I was on the launch team for Lean In and was a huge proponent of Lean In and still am. And one of the things that became really clear to me is that. If you are someone who already has a lot on your plate and part of the story that you have experienced and have told yourself and has been reinforced is that you don't have a lot of people in your life to help either pick up the slack or pick up the balls as they were, then it actually creates more anxiety when someone encourages you to lean in, for example. Well, one of the things that I try to spend a lot of time doing in the book is explaining that we were never meant to lean in alone, that all of us need scaffolding. So the thing that I encourage, you know, if you haven't read this book yet, if you 
don't have a practice for yourself, if you haven't figured out what matters most to you, the first thing I encourage you to do is to just stop to take a deep breath in and out, at least three of them, and then to reach out to someone in your ecosystem, someone in your village, someone who you love and someone who you trust, and to say to them, I know I'm calling you out of the blue and this may seem really crazy, but I need help. I'm really stressed. I'm feeling a lot of anxiety right now. If you know where it's coming from, share where it's coming from. If you don't know, just say, I don't even know where it's coming from. But something compelled me to just reach out to you to let someone know that I need help. That's the first thing that I would encourage people to do. Hmm. Oh, I'm exhaling listening to that. And it reminds me of all of your amazing strategies in the book about building community and even your labeling and your intentionality of what those layers of community and neighbors and friends and sponsors are. I know I'm conflating two different things that you write about in the book. But before I get there, I want to ask you the second question that I wrote down, which is, so for the woman who's listening in who says, great, a life mission would be awesome. Let me start planning that. Let me figure that out. Or, you know, a purpose or a mission statement or a compass for my marriage would be really great. What about the person who feels like they don't know? Like they try and they do these exercises and they feel stuck. Mm -hmm. Oh, you mean like most people? <laughs> yes. <laughs> right, exactly. Okay. So maybe there's someone in the world who's like walking down the street and the skies open up and rain starts falling and they drop to their knees and some voice of God says, you are here to save the orca whales or something like that. But that is not normally <laughs> what happens to any of us. A purpose is simply a commitment inspired by experiences, okay? Which means that a purpose can be engineered quite easily. I could sit down with you, Sarah, for an hour and listen to you share stories about your life and engineer several different purposes that you could have, that you could commit yourself to. And by the way, it doesn't have to be for the rest of your life. Did you know as a woman, you could like decide something and then you can go back and change your mind later? And Stop. No. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Something else. So, you know, I do think it's helpful to commit to something in the short term. If you're someone like me and you can get scattered and a bit overwhelmed with what's on your plate, but there are several exercises. The two that were the most helpful for me after reading a bunch of books and trying a different things. One was this kind of cheesy funeral visualization exercise that was made popular by Stephen Covey in his book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And you basically imagine that it's your funeral sometime in the future, hopefully in the distant one. And that three people in your life, a family member, a friend, a coworker, are eulogizing you. And you imagine what you would want those people to say. And for someone like me who used to be very obsessed with lists and with tasks and with checking things off lists, it was very helpful for me to come to a place of realizing that, you know, what I do is far less important than the difference I make, that I don't want my tombstone to say she got a lot of stuff done. <laughs> she got a lot of things checked off of her list. I wanted to say something more important than that. And that exercise does a lot to help you achieve clarity about what is it at the end of this journey that you would want to achieve and how can we then begin to project manage back from there. Another exercise that was incredibly helpful for me was reaching out to several people in my life that had known me in different contexts. And this exercise, it's kind of important that you connect with people who experienced you as a child up until your adulthood. 
And you just get in contact with those individuals and ask them to share one thing, which is, can you tell me about a time when you experienced me at my best? And if you can record their responses even better, if they can be transcribed even better, because what's incredibly enlightening is to then take all of the interview transcripts to lay them out on a big table or on the floor, and then to start circling words and phrases that are the same. And what essentially emerges is your brand, basically the experience that people have had with you from the time that you were a child. And what's fascinating is that it doesn't change that much. The Tiffany that you're talking to now is the same one that my kindergarten teacher (laughs) was talking to. And it's really helpful in you understanding who you actually are in the world and what you should be doing and how you should be executing your purpose and your mission. Wow. Well, another breath of fresh air in what you said in terms of you don't have to know everything going forward and your purpose can be engineered around the next five years. Sometimes I feel like, you know, my kid right now is 19 months old and I see people who are coming up with their next five-year plan and I kind of panic a little. I'm like, oh God, I haven't done that in forever. And then I realize it's because I'm inside of my current five-year plan, which is to have two kids. And I'm like, nope, living it. Like, it's just happening. I don't have to have another fancy plan for another couple of years. It's all right to be here. Yeah, That's That's it. And then I couldn't have even told you five years ago that I would be working on this project, Startup Pregnant. And now it's what I'm doing. And I know I'm doing it for the next five years. And I have no idea what's happening after that. And I'm kind of okay with that. Good. It's exciting. I mean, Facebook didn't even exist 10, 15 years ago. Like what's going to be up in five years? We can't even know. Okay. So I would love to ask you a little bit about community building because one of the things that just blew me away in the book was that you managed to make time. This podcast is certainly a wonderful example, but you make time to meet with women and mentor them and have a coffee or morning cup of tea, what, three to five times a week. You're seeing people every single week. That's A, incredible and such a commitment to your service and B, a testament to how important community is. So Can you talk about the strategies you use to create community and why it's such an important thing for people to invest in? Absolutely. So for me, community is everything. And part of my feeling of that way probably has to do with the fact that for a long time, because of my own insecurities, that's all I felt that I had. Particularly as a young professional, I didn't go to an Ivy League school. I didn't have parents with a pedigree that could just introduce me to the right people. I am here talking to you on this podcast as a successful author and as an evangelist for women and girls because other people invested in me, because other people opened doors for me and created opportunities. And I figured out really quickly that if you run through a door that somebody opens for you, not skip, not hop, not walk, but run through the door, that person will think very highly of you and they'll open more doors for you. And so because I'm the cumulative investment of a lot of people who have opened doors, I feel an enormous responsibility to continue to keep those doors open for others, but also I've reaped the benefits. And it's one of the ways that I've been able to drop 
the ball. So it means a great deal to me. And I think that if you're someone who has different forms of community, you may not have to be as intentional as I've been in creating it. But certainly if you're someone who feels like I don't have community, I want everyone to know that you can create community. It can be time consuming, but it lessens the amount of time that you spend on other things down the road. So it is one of the most important investments I've made outside of my college education and and taking out student loans to pay for college. It's like the second most important investment I've made. Hmm. I think it's such an often underlooked until you need it kind of network tool. And it plays so much into not just work and success and those types of metrics, but in life happiness and do your neighbors know your name and do people wave to you on the street is such an important place to spend time. And yet on the daily, I find it really hard to put it on my to-do list. Like the to-do list always seems to have a sort of certain slant to it. It's like always things that have to be checked off and executed. How do you deal with to-do lists and why are they or why aren't they a good tool to have? So I've eliminated to-do lists because I have no to-do list discipline. (laughs) So, you know, if you're someone who can plot out your to-do list, like you can take incoming requests, for example, put them in some kind of holding place and then go back at some point and organize them and actually get them off of the list, like more power to you. I found when I did that, that basically the to-do list never ended. It was like these constant to-dos and I would always feel a sense of anxiety over the fact that I could never get to the bottom of the list. So I've done away with them all together now as part of my drop the ball strategy. I just use my calendar. So when I open an email and there's a request for time, do you think that you could blurb my book? Do you think that you could show up to speak at this event? Do you think that you could be on this committee? If it's not obvious, ask, write them back with clarifying questions. When will this committee be meeting? How long are the meetings? How many pages is your book? When is your deadline? And the reason why I do that is because I go to my calendar and I see whether or not I can find that block of time in my reality, which is I only have 24 hours in a day. And if I can look in advance and say, you know what, in order to be on this committee, I basically need to, you know, go to one meeting that's an hour long every three months. And I can easily find that in the calendar. I go ahead and put that in there and I can go right back to the person and say, sure, I can do this. I've got it in my calendar. I've got it blocked off. There are times when, you know, someone will say, I, you know, I look at the review request and it's going to take me seven hours to review the book and their deadline is five days from now. And there's just no way. So I go back to the person and I say, I can't do it. Sometimes I'll get a request that's really amazing and I want to say yes to it, but there's already too many other things on the calendar. So then I have to do what is so difficult for us to do, which is I have to look at who's already on the calendar, who I already said yes to. And I have to go back to that person and say, I'm so sorry. I said that I could be on this panel at your event, but I'm not going to be able to do that anymore. I'll try to find someone to replace me, but I'm just so sorry. I need to cancel this commitment so that I can take, you know, the other event that I want to be at for this other organization and put it on there, for example. 
just using my calendar as a way to manage my to-dos has been really important for me to keep it real about whether or not it's even possible to get things done. Hmm. I don't know what type of calendar you use, but that reminds me, I think Google Calendars has a new setting that can add in the commute time for things. And it just, it blew my mind because I was like, oh, right. I don't actually have that. Like the only thing I can be doing there is reading the book for the person I'm going to be interviewing next. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So in the year or so since you finished the book, and I'm assuming you've sent the manuscript in at the end of last year, but you included parts of the election. By the way, how was that? (laughs) I, like many people, thought that Hillary Clinton was going to be our president at this very moment. And the day after the election, I called my publisher to say, holy crap, that is not what's going to happen. I need to go back into the book. The book was practically on the printing presses with an assumption that she would be (laughs) the next president. So I basically did a last minute poll the day after the election and edited the book to reflect our current reality. So that was just a very incredible luck of timing that I was able to pull it. You know, I had probably a three-day window to make those changes. I was estimating because the book came out in February of 2017. I was like, so her manuscript must have been due. But how did she write about the election? So I was wondering. But (laughs) so now it's been almost a year since you submitted the work and even longer since you started thinking about these ideas. I'm curious. How has your understanding of dropping the ball evolved and changed in this last year? Well, it's needed now more than ever before for several reasons. One is that though this seems like a book about work-life balance and, you know, achieving more by doing less, my agenda for this book was really around women and leadership and the fact that I've spent the vast bulk of my career trying to figure out how we get more women at the highest levels because we need diversity in order for us to innovate new solutions to the very complex problems that we have. And this past year has just reiterated even more the urgency of having women in elective office, having them at the tops of corporations, having them curating the public policies and the workplace practices that impact every single one of our lives. So, you know, the truth is that I don't want women to drop the ball just because I want them to have more time on their hands. I want them to drop the ball because I want them to pursue the highest level of leadership that they possibly can. And what I heard over and over and over from women is, I would do that, Tiffany, except that I have all of these other responsibilities and I'm only one person. And so I need to negotiate between the two. And drop the ball was my response to that in a lot of ways to say, I get it. I really get it. Let us figure out how to stop before you lean in and figure out what balls can be dropped so that you can create a life that you're passionate about, but more importantly for the entire world so that we can benefit from your ingenuity and your creativity at the highest level possible. It was such a call to arms. Maybe that's not the right phrase, actually, now that I say that out loud, but it was such a rallying cry to women who are in partnerships, who are aiming for leadership positions, who have very promising careers and then get stuck in that time that you call kind of the middle management. You didn't say kerfuffle, but that's the word that's coming to mind. Can you talk about why 
that middle level of leadership and management can be such a challenging space to navigate, particularly when it comes at a point in women's careers that they want to be partnering, not all women, of course, but they want to be partnering and having children. Why does that present such unique challenges? Well, part of the reason why is because there's this combustion of time that has to do with where we often are in our personal lives and our professional lives simultaneously. So at the same time that women are often entering middle management, which effectively means that you're beyond just your own performance in order to achieve results. You really now have to learn how to achieve results through other people because this is the time in your career where you're responsible for other people's livelihoods, for stewarding them, for mentoring them, and supporting them and managing them in the workplace. But it also happens to be the time in a woman's life where often she's adding more responsibility to her plate at home. Oftentimes with children, if she's partnered or married, she's got, you know, someone else there as well. And so it's this confluence of more people to take care of at work and more people that I'm taking care of at home that creates what I call this life go round where you're just kind of a full-time job at work and a full-time job at home. And it just feels like you're just going through one revolving door to the next. And it's also a time in our professional lives where we haven't usually gotten to the point in our salary level and like responsibility level where we're making enough money to just simply outsource all of it. So by the way, once you get past this stage, if you can get past it, what higher level executive women do is just pay a bunch of people to take care of their domestic responsibilities. They are still to be very clear they are still, as women, responsible for it, which is what I would like for us to disrupt <laughs> indefinitely. But their band-aid is to be able to outsource it all. Most of the time, though, for you know the average woman, you're not making enough money to be able to do that. Certainly, that was my experience. And so I really did have to figure out how am I going to still accelerate my career, which I think is really important for the economic benefit of my family, but also because I love my work and it helps me to make a difference in the world and simultaneously take care of things on the home front without being able to afford to just hire staff. It's this class catch-22, not just class, but race, gender, all of it. And if you had enough money to outsource it, you would have more time to be able to do the work. It's such a challenging place to be. How do you work with people that are in that space where it feels like it's just, I'm stuck, I'm not able to level up yet. Now I have hundreds of thousands of plates flying towards me. Because it sounds like from your book that you were able to get through this period. And then at the end of the book, you write about how you were appointed as president and you had more leadership positions and even more doors opened up to you. Why do you think that was? Is that a result of hustling when we're younger? Is that dropping the ball? Is it a combination of all of it? Like, How do you talk to women about staying the course and getting to those leadership positions? Yeah, I mean, it's all of that. It's really about being able to see the forest from the trees. And on a day-to-day -day basis, particularly if you're feeling any sense of anxiety, it's very hard to pull out from the day-to-day. -day. But that's exactly what's required in order for us to get to a point where we can say, you know what, this just came over the fence, or I just got this email, or this is happening. But I am not going to worry about it because I can't, because I have all of these other things that are really important to me. 
when, you know, ever I sit down with someone and I sit down with a lot of women who are really stressed, Sarah, and who are feeling the effects of that, whether it's physically through their body, their relationships with other people are broken and they kind of just spew off everything that's going and how challenging it is. I'll start with what's your story. That's how I always start my conversations with women. And that's when I get to hear where they're coming from and what their challenges might be, what their opportunities might be. The next question that I ask is what matters most to you? And usually people rattle off different areas of their life. My family's important. My marriage is important. My kids are important. My career is important. But what I'm trying to help them arrive at is what do you hope to achieve in relationship to each one of those areas, right? Because that really can help us narrow the scope of what we should really be focused on or be feeling any sense of anxiety about in order for us to be our best selves. Now, it's difficult for us to get at that in one conversation. So, you know, oftentimes I'll send women off with exercises and more work to do. That to me is really the first step for all of us, by the way, for men too, really getting clear about what matters most to us in order for us to be able to even take a step back. And so sometimes that does require you taking 20 minutes or 30 minutes or an hour or something and just kind of taking yourself out of your current environment so that you have some moments to reflect, but it's well worth the investment. Tiffany, I could ask you a hundred more questions. And I know that everybody listening is taking notes and getting so many insights. And I want to say thank you so much for taking the time to share all of this with people. There's so much more in the book too, for everybody listening. She has really wonderful guidelines for creating community and the four questions she asks her family and the research that shows why gratitude is so important and also how a lot of this is harmful, not just to women, but also to men and their role in partnerships and work and in leadership. So I heartily endorse finding a copy of this book. Tiffany, where can people find you on the interwebs and find out about the work that you do? They can find me at tiffanydufu.com, T-I-F-F-A-N-Y-D-U-F-U.com. And if you're like most very busy women, I also encourage you to download the book on Audible. I read the book so that you could listen to it while you were doing all of the other things that are on your plate. Mm, I love that. That's probably really wonderful because I know that you are an English major and then got a master's, I believe. And so the storytelling that holds together the whole book makes it just such a pleasure to read. Thank sounds, you. Yeah, sounds like a great way to listen to it. Thank you so much. I hope you have a wonderful week and I cannot wait to share this episode with everyone. Thanks, Sarah. so much for being a listener of the show. A few more things before we end this episode. First, if you know of a woman or a friend that would benefit from this show, send them a link to our website at startuppregnant.com. So many of you have already reached out and shared your stories, what this podcast is doing for you. And for that, I am so grateful. So if you know of somebody that would love to listen in, or you think that these stories would really hit at home for somebody, feel free to send it along. Second, if you've got a story that you need to share or tell, head over to startuppregnant.com and send us a note. We have had so much reader mail already, and your stories mean the world to us. 
We are proudly listener-sponsored, so if you want to sponsor the show and hear more episodes, head over to our Patreon page and you can buy us a cup of coffee or two or three. We'll take many cups of coffee. If you want any of the show notes or links from this particular episode, all of the references and tools and tips that we talk about are always posted on startuppregnant.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I will see you on the next episode.